이렇게. Well, welcome to week three of this series, Finding Happiness. And while we don't believe in karma, we do believe in this idea of reaping and sowing. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about in the context of how we find happiness. And so right inside of your bulletin should be some message notes. If you want to go and grab those out, if everyone can do this and do some fill in the blanks and take that with you. We also want to say thank you to our partner, Church North Point, for helping us build the content uh, during this series. Uh, But really, when it comes to happiness, we all have the same problem. How do you sustain it? How do you keep it, right, in your everyday practical living? Uh, Because the truth is, and you know this somewhere internally, that you have been designed for a capacity of happiness, haven't we? Uh, As humans, we search for it, we long for it, we want to find that sense of happiness sustaining. And the question is, if God would design us with this kind of capacity, why wouldn't he want us to fulfill it? And so your very first fill-in in your notes is this question, what do we do to sustain happiness? And I'm going to give you the answer right out of the gate, and then we're going to kind of unfold this for the next few minutes. It is found in the principle of sowing and reaping. It's found in this principle of sowing and reaping. Now, as I've seen on social media lately over the last few days, I see some of you have already been out to the apple orchards, and some of you have already been purchasing your pumpkins and creating your little harvest displays on your front steps, and they're so cute. Uh, Anyway, uh, but, you know, it's interesting. When we go to the store to buy apples or whatever, you know, for, for those of us that aren't farmers, I don't think any of us are farmers, but maybe you had a grandparent that was a farmer. Um, that's one way to say, Ryan, this is terrible start. Just stop while you're ahead. Just stop while you're ahead. So we'll get this figured out here in a second. There we go. So none of us are farmers. Maybe you had a grandparent that was a farmer. Uh, my wife's grandparents were farmers, and so she would go and spend the weekend at the farm. But if you don't spend a lot of time around that environment, you know, we just take it for granted. We go to the store, we buy some apples, and we've got our apples. We don't think about the process of planting the apple seeds and letting the tree grow, and someone's got to maintain it and take care of it and go out and harvest those apples. But here's one thing that I do know about farming, that even though I'm not a farmer, and it's just because I'm really, really smart, and here it is. There is nobody that has ever planted apple seeds and gotten a pumpkin. Nobody, right? It's impossible. In fact, it doesn't matter how bad you want to grow pumpkins. Unless you plant pumpkin seeds, you will never grow pumpkins. Same way, there's nobody that ever planted, like, you know, little things of lettuce. And pumpkins popped out of the ground, right? There's nobody that planted a pear tree and apples came off of it. It's not how it works. Everything is based on this one principle, that whatever you sow, you reap, or whatever you plant, that's what you will end up harvesting. And it is the same idea when it comes to us sustaining happiness in our life. And we're going to look at the very first sermon that Jesus ever gave to his followers. And for those of you that have been around church maybe for a minute, uh, you would know it as the Sermon on the Mount. And it includes the, th- the eight Beatitudes that we would call because they all start with the word blessed or blessed. And here's what's interesting is that uh, this word, your next fill-in, this word blessed is a Greek word, makarios. And it actually means 
fortunate or happy. Fortunate or happy. And of all the topics that Jesus could have started with, right? I mean, think about this. For the first time, the Son of God is gathering people to him to talk about something. And of all the topics he could have chosen, he decided that his first message and his first sermon was going to be all about happiness. Very interesting. And so as we walk through these things very quickly, uh, we're going to find that Jesus gives us extraordinary insight into this idea of happiness, and it might be much different than you think, but how we can sustain it in our lives. Now, here's the great thing, that even if you're not a Jesus follower, even if you're not a religious person, these things, I think you would agree with Jesus' logic here. It's so extraordinary and makes so much sense that I would just invite all of us to lean in on these principles, and if we will apply them to our lives, we can find sustained happiness. And so we jump right into uh, Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, verse 1. It says this. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, now the crowds were his followers, the crowds were people that were interested in who he said he was, they were his disciples. But when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And here was Jesus' very first message, all about happiness. And he said this, verse 3, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think when you think of this term poor in spirit, it doesn't immediately make you think of happiness. But Jesus, out of the gate, addresses one of the biggest myths that I think we're all keenly aware of, and we actually talked about this in week one, that people's happiness rises and falls based on how much stuff they own. Jesus just attacks this myth right out of the gate, and he says, rich people aren't happy, and poor people aren't happy. Let me tell you the kind of people that are happy. They are the people that are poor in spirit, poor in spirit. And to be poor in spirit means this, and it's your next fill-in. It's to acknowledge that no matter how much or little you have, you are completely dependent on God every single day. To be poor in spirit means to recognize that I'm not enough. That there's something bigger at work than me here. So regardless of how much I have or how little I have, it's somebody who is completely dependent on God every single day. And Jesus is saying, listen, these are the people that ultimately will be happy. Because this is what Jesus knew. And it's your next feeling, and we probably know this internally somewhere as well. That the moment you put your trust in riches, instead of him who richly provides, you're unhappy. The moment you and I put our trust in riches, instead of him who richly provides, provides, we will become unhappy. The moment we transfer our trust from our Heavenly Father as our provider to all th of all things, and we begin to trust in our education, we begin to trust in our jobs, we begin to trust in opportunities, we trust in the things that all of us tend to fall into over time. The moment we transfer our trust from Him who richly provides to ourselves, we become happy. And here's why. Because suddenly... It is up to you to control all the outcomes. And it's up to me to control all the outcomes. And in case you hadn't noticed, you and I are not that great at ultimately controlling outcomes, are we? And so we have this pressure on ourselves. 
And that's why you can meet poor people that are unhappy, middle class people, rich people that are unhappy. Because this feeling and this burden that it's all up to me has landed on their shoulders. And by definition, Jesus says, ultimately, you will be unhappy. But those who choose to be poor in spirit, those that wake up every day and say, God, I'm putting all of my dependence on you. It's not about me. It's all about you. Those are the people that ultimately will be happy. He continues next in verse 4. It says, blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed or happy are those who mourn. Now, when we think of mourning, we don't think of happiness, do we? We don't think of happiness, but here's a good definition for you. Here are those who mourn. Mourners are people who are emotionally connected and do not hide from the disappointments in life. They're emotionally connected and they don't hide from disappointments in life. And here's the idea that Jesus is trying to get us to lean in on. It's people that understand that there are bad things that happen in the world. There are unjust things that happen in our world. There is a randomness that happens in our world. And they're willing to walk into those moments of sorrow and grief and stay there and face it full on and embrace the fact that death or difficulty is actually a part of life. And we do something more with it than just trying to run from it. You know, I think of, Tara and I, you know, we have four kids, but when we had three, uh, we had three kind of, you know, close together. They're, you know, 11, 10, 7. And so we decided uh, after that, we, you know, we, we just were deciding whether or not we should have another uh, kid. And so there was lots of late nights kind of talking about it, should we, shouldn't we? And at that time, Tara was going back to school to get her master's degree. You know, we had just started Riverway. And so we were like in the trenches. Our kids were way six years younger then. So we had little, little kids. And just all that going on, and we just thought, man, do, you know, do we want another kid? And we just hadn't decided. And so we just kind of, you know, let life happen and all of this. And um, several years later, uh, Tara was pregnant unexpectedly. And we still don't know how that happens, but it happened. And so, uh, you know, she, I, I come home, and she shows me, or I think I was at work, she sent me the stick, you know, a picture of the little stick that said pregnant. And I'm like, oh, you know, one of those things. And we spent the next week just kind of like, wrestling with this like unexpected are we sure we were ready is this really happening and after about a week it was like we started to get really excited we're like okay we're we're doing this ready or not number four is coming here we go and it was about a week after that that Tara miscarried and so for us uh you know there was just a lot of emotions involved because we weren't even expecting it and then we were kind of unsure and saying oh my gosh we're surprised by this and then it led into the point where we were really starting to get excited about it. And, you know, it's one of those times in your life that you just got to stop and just embrace it for what it is, right? That you just lean into it. Um, and it was through that process that we realized that we really did want another child. And um, a couple years later, here's Paxton, right? And uh, in the mix, he's two now. And, uh, you know, we can't imagine life without him. But I think it's really easy for us at times when we face difficulties in life, when we face tragedies, when we face hard things, the easy thing to do is to run away from it. The easy thing to do is to drink it away. Uh, the easy thing to do is to try to sweep it under the rug or pretend it doesn't happen. And I think that's a natural reaction for all of us because we don't want to lean into difficulty any more than we have to. But Jesus is saying this, for those people that are willing to step into that mourning process, 
And instead of drinking it away, running it away, avoiding it away, worrying it away, when you begin to lean on your heavenly Father during those darkest hours, He steps in and He comforts you like no thing or no one can. And ultimately, those people are happy. Ultimately, those people don't have to drag that through their entire life. And it ends up being an anchor around them for the rest of their life. So God comforts us, and as a result, we become happy because of it. The next one, he says, Blessed are the meek, or happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Now, I think our response, when we, heard, when we hear the word meek, it's always negative. And, and, I, and I don't really know why that is, but um, you know, I don't think there's any of us that are growing up and we're thinking, man, one day when I grow up, I just really want to be meek. I just can't wait to be meek. Or for those dads with daughters, you know, I don't think you ever, you know, thought, you know, as you're talking to your daughter, honey, I just really want you to find a meek man, right? Just find a meek man, you know? And, and most of us, we're just thinking, listen, if he's just got a job, that would be good. Let's just start. If he's got a job, this is a good first step. Uh, but I think meekness, for whatever reason, is associated with weakness. But Jesus understood it as a powerful key to our happiness. And here would be a definition for you, that meekness, is a proper estimation of oneself within the broader context of God's creation. It's understanding this proper estimation of who we are and who God's place is to be in this world. A meek person faces the reality about who they are while a part of God's creation and while a part of God's plan, a meek person realizes they aren't the center of the plan. Right? There isn't this striving for more friends or being somebody that you're not or more followers or being the center of attention. There's like this security that happens in someone's life when they're meek. Understanding this proper evaluation of who you are and who God has made you to be. And so meekness is not weakness. It's simply acknowledging God's estimation and valuation of me based on who he created to me, me to be. And those people ultimately are happy in life because there isn't this striving going on. There's a security that they find in themselves and in God. Jesus continues in verse 6. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I know in, in, in our thought process, the only thing that we've ever hungered and thirst for are like pizza and a Mountain Dew, right? Or we want some ice cream or some Diet A&W. You know what I'm saying, for those of you that were here last week. Uh, you know, we, we tend to think in those terms. And so when Jesus kind of flips this script and he says, listen, I want us to become hungry for things that are right. And that's what this word righteousness means. It just means things that are right. To hunger and thirst for that which is right. Um, it's committed to do the right thing. I think this would be a, a good definition, and it's your next fill-in. That happy are those who are committed to doing the right thing, even when it costs them. Happy are those who are committed to doing the right thing, even when it costs them. Jesus says, happy are those people with no guilt, with a clear conscience, right? Those that are going through life without regret, right? We all want to live there, and we know that we're happiest when we don't have those things attached to us. I don't know if you've been paying any attention lately to kind of the sports world, but there is like this massive scandal that just broke out in the college basketball world. And if you're not aware, uh, Adidas, you know, the shoemaker and the athletic apparel company, uh, found out that the FBI has been investigating them along with assistant coaches and universities for the last couple of years 
because what they found is that Adidas, who had signed big contracts with these universities, they were helping to funnel hundreds of thousands of dollars to high school players and their families if they would sign with those universities who they have contracts with. And so this is like massively illegal. You can't do this sort of thing. And yet this has been going on for a long time. The FBI has been involved. They have, you know, the secret recordings, the tapes, the videos, all of this stuff. And they arrested 10 people, and they said the fallout is just beginning from this. And these people are facing up to 10 years on every count, and they, they're facing eight counts individually. And so you think about this, and you just go, man. Uh, and, and what makes it more bizarre is, is one of the universities at the heart of this is Louisville University, and Rich, Rick Pitino, he's already been uh, relieved of his duties, already been fired. Same with the athletic director, they're, they're, they're out. Uh, but what's interesting is that they are already under sanctions from a scandal they were in a few years ago where they hired prostitutes for some of the team members, right? So this school that is already in the limelight and already like under major sanctions has now been caught again. And what was interesting is in one of the taped videos by the FBI, uh, one of the assistant coaches says, now because of our previous sanctions, we have to be very careful how we do this, right? And so here's the interesting thing about sin, and we understand this, is as we talked about last week, sin always separates, sin, sin always divides, sin always keeps us longer than we wanted to stay, it always keeps, you know, costs us more than we want to pay. And that's just the nature of sin. And Jesus is saying, listen, for the people that would be willing to be hungry for doing what is right, no matter what it costs them. Those are the people that ultimately will be happy in life. Because, as we know, these assistant directors, these, you know, coaches, all of these things, they are no longer happy, even though they were once getting bribe money under the table. That money may have momentarily made them happy, but ultimately, it is going to absolutely ruin their happiness. And the thing is, is that we know this is true. Because when we look back to our greatest regret, it was typically the time that we knew the difference between right and wrong, and we decided to do what was wrong, didn't we? And because we decided to do what was wrong, there's consequences in our life that come along with that. And this is true of that one thing that we wish we could erase, maybe that we've dragged through life. It's because when we've been at that point of decision, we've chosen the wrong decision. And Jesus is saying, listen, I know this may not be popular, and I know it may sound religious, but happy are the people, blessed are the people who hunger and thirst for what is right. Those are happy people. Jesus continues. Verse 7, he says, Blessed or happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What is mercy? I think we define it this way. It's giving people what they don't deserve. And so in another way, Jesus is saying this, and it's your next film, that happy people are those who are relationally generous. Happy are the people who are relationally generous. Happy are those that give people exactly what they don't deserve relationally. Happy are those who aren't seeking revenge. Happy are those that are not holding on to bitterness. Happy are those that are willing to forgive. Happy are those who aren't holding on to grudges. Happy are those who are not waiting to be paid back something from a previous relationship. Because you know this, come on. You have never met a happy, bitter person, have you? Never. You've, in fact, never met a truly happy person that has been holding on to a grudge for a very long time, and it has impacted every part of their life. Come on, we've all met people like that. And it's like their happiness has evaporated. Why? Because they've never understood this principle, that happy are the merciful, for they, in turn, will be shown mercy. 
And it brings us to happiness. And it reminds me of a friend of mine whose dad was murdered by another man. And growing up, uh, this son, my friend, he did not know the Lord. He didn't go to church. And so there was this bitterness and this resentment against this man that ultimately took his dad's life. And in his teenage years, he became a follower of Jesus. And the more he learned about being a follower of Jesus, he began to bump into these passages about forgiving those who have hurt you. Releasing, though, that bitterness and that anger. Understanding that it truly only destroys us on the inside and doesn't destroy the other person. And the more he leaned into these teachings, he realized that there was a bitterness and an anger that he was holding on to that he had to let go of. And so after months of searching and calling and making arrangements, he was able to meet his father's killer face to face to let him know that he's been forgiven. And he said, Ryan, when I made that decision, when I uttered those words to extend forgiveness, the weight that came off of me was unbelievable. Why is that? Because happy will be the people who show mercy. Because the weight allows it to come off of your shoulders and suddenly you can have peace with others. It's those that are willing to lean in and be relationally generous. Those that decide to extend to their father exactly what their father didn't deserve. Those that are willing to extend to their ex-wife or ex-husband exactly what they didn't deserve. That boss, extending to that boss exactly what they don't deserve. And as a result, there's happiness on the other side. Now this next one I think is amazing because in the statement, Jesus is kind of baiting everyone in to say, listen, would you like to see God? I mean, that's a pretty interesting question. Or even more so, would you like to be able to see the plan that God has for your life? Or when you're coming up to really big decisions, relationship decisions, financial decisions, life decisions, would you like to be able to see those situations clearly and how God is in those things? And I think for every one of us, we would say, yes, absolutely, that's what we want. And so Jesus continues in his first sermon, and he says, happy or blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see God. And here's why this is so impactful, because all of us, to some extent, we would say, in our past, when we look back in a previous relationship, a previous season in life, we would say, Man, when I look back on that, I think to myself, how could I not see that coming? I mean, I am a pretty in tune person. How is it that I was blind to what took place in my life? How was it that I didn't have the wherewithal to notice that coming at me long before it got here? Right? Every single one of us have been there. We've thought those things. And Jesus would say to us, and it's your next feeling, that the clarity that God gives that you and I need for life is found in moral and ethical purity. It's the thing that clears the air for us to be able to see clearly and to see God clearly and our relationship with God to be clear. It's found in moral and ethical purity. And this is so counter to our culture. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Our culture doesn't even talk about the word purity. It's not even like in their vocabulary anywhere. Unless it's like, 
Water purity. Then they'll talk about purity, right? How pure is the water you're drinking? Let's talk about that for a minute, right? But at no other time is our culture even engaged in this idea of what purity looks like in our life. Jesus is saying, if you want to have clarity about life and where God is leading you, if you want to have clarity about sin, if you want to have clarity and see God in every situation, then let purity lead the way in your life. And the reason our culture doesn't talk about it, come on, we know this, the reason our culture doesn't talk about this is because they would say, then you're missing out. If you're going to choose purity, then you're missing out on all the fun, on all the action, all the activity. And Jesus would say the contrary is true, that if you will do what is right and pure, there will come a day that you realize that all you missed out on was destruction and unhappiness. Because we know that's what sin leads to every time. And you will be able to see with clarity how closeness with God has made you so much happier in life. Then he continues, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And I just think this is such a fascinating statement that those that would strive to make peace are actually called children of God. Why would this be? There's something so profound here that I think we miss it if we, if we don't catch this. That last week when we talked about making peace with God, that is God's ultimate goal with us, that we would have peace with him. And when he sees us making peace with others, we are never more like our heavenly Father. So he says, blessed are the peacemakers, or happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now let me ask you this clarifying question. Have you ever met a happy troublemaker? Have you ever? Like that person that is always stirring up problems at work, or in the neighborhood, or at school, in the friendship circles? Have you ever met a happy troublemaker? Of course not. Why? Because troublemakers are troubled by other people's happiness. Isn't this true? They don't want you to be happy, and if they don't want you to be happy, and they're not happy, I mean, we're, we're just, none of us are going to be happy, right? If I'm not happy, we're, none of us are going to be happy. And Jesus says there's no happiness found in troublemaking, but there is happiness found in peacemaking. And so here's a definition in your next fill. And happy are those who are willing to walk into relationships that are breaking. Don't miss this. Happy are those who are willing to walk into relationships that are breaking and make peace make peace now this last one might be the most difficult of them at all and maybe we give some pushback here but Jesus wraps it up this way he says happy or blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness or persecuted for doing the right thing or honoring your heavenly father and I think at first glance we'd say, well, the word persecuted and the word blessed, those things do not go together to equal happiness. No way, no how. I mean, if I'm being persecuted, like if I'm the only one doing the right thing at work and I still lose my job, how is that being blessed? If I'm the only one that doesn't cheat on the test and all my other friends have the answers and they cheat on the test and they get good grades and I get a bad grade because I didn't cheat, how is that? being blessed. Well, here's what Jesus is getting at. It's so true. That in this life, you are going to suffer for either doing the right thing or the wrong thing. But you can only be happy under one of those equations. You can only be happy on one side of that equation. 
And here it is, your next fill-in. You can be happy when you're persecuted for doing the right thing before God because at the end of the day, you have peace with yourself and you have peace with God. That is why you can have happiness with yourself. But if you suffer for doing the wrong thing, come on, we know this, you don't have peace with others, you don't have peace with yourself, and you don't have peace with God. I try to pray over my kids every night, you know, when they're going to bed and we tuck them in and do our little routine. And part of my prayer every single time as I'm tucking them into bed, I end the prayer this way. And God, would you give them the wisdom to know what's right and the courage to do what's right no matter what? God, would you give them the wisdom to know what's right, give them the courage to do what's right no matter what? Because we know that happiness is in many ways an equation. It's all about reaping and sowing. And that if you're willing to choose the right thing, that happiness comes on the other side. And here's your next fill-in. That happiness is an outcome. These, this is what Jesus is really concluding towards. And this is the common denominator between all eight of these things. That happiness is an outcome. It's a result of reaping and sowing. That happiness is more about ultimate than immediate. And here's the other thing about happiness. It's not immediately accessible. You cannot plant the seeds of an apple tree and tomorrow go outside and pick your apples. You cannot do that. You cannot walk in here and say, man, I was really unhappy before this life-changing, earth-shattering, best talk ever, Ryan, that you just gave. But now as I leave, I am, I'm happy now. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because happiness is an outcome and happiness is not immediately available. It is a process of sowing and reaping. It is a process of planting and harvesting. And there are many of us, and we know this is true because for so long, we have planted our way into unhappiness. We have sown by our decisions to a place where we are unhappy in life. And why is it? It's been a result of us planting the wrong decisions and making the wrong decisions. And Jesus is saying, listen, in the same way, it is never too late to begin to sow in the other direction. And it may take some time, but it's worth it every single time. It may take some time, but you can decide today to embrace meekness. You can decide from this point forward that you're going to be relationally generous, that you're going to be a peacemaker. You're going to be somebody that forgives. You can decide someone, even if it costs me, God, I want to be a person that hungers and thirsts after what is right. I want to make that kind of decision. And even if it means it's going to cost me by getting new roommates or canceling some subscriptions or breaking up with him or her or finding a new friend group, listen, I'm willing to do those things because I want to sow and reap happiness in my life. And happiness is an outcome based on the choices that you and I make every day. And here's how Jesus concludes this incredible message on the mount. And he's leaning us all, he's driving us all towards this idea of sowing and reaping right here. And he concludes this way with this parable. And some of you have even heard or read this before. Verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and let's say this next part together, and puts them into practice. Jesus says, listen, come on, lean in on this. Everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, practice. In other words, the person that doesn't just say, wow, that was a great message, Ryan, nice job, and forget about it. Now the person says, oh, that makes sense, yeah, absolutely, and forget about it. Jesus says, no, 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 that has no value. 
just like you wishing you had pumpkins pop out of the ground or just wish you could have a tree pop up and pull apples off of it. It doesn't work that way. Jesus says in the exact same way, for the people that will hear these words of mine and put them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Jesus continues, but everyone who hears these words of mine, and let's say this together, does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You see, nothing changed immediately, but everything changes eventually. It is this process of reaping and sowing. And it reminds me of this incredible story of Warren and Pam Adams who lost a house to Hurricane Rita in 2005. Their home was wiped out. And they decided they loved that area so much that they wanted to build again. But this time they built a house that stood 14 feet above the ground or 22 feet above sea level, which gave them a much better chance of withstanding a strong hurricane. And here's what their house looked like after they rebuilt it. And just three years later, Hurricane Ike devastated that same peninsula town, flattening most of the 200 homes there. And the couple's yellow house on the beach was the only house on the Gulf Coast not to be leveled. And this is a very real picture. I want you to see this. The only house. And just like in that parable, that Jesus is inviting us into, that there is no immediate return for putting these behaviors in place. You can't be merciful today and suddenly you're happy. But putting these behaviors into practice over time makes all the difference. The man whose house was built on the rock, his house was still standing. The man who built his house on sand had nothing left but regret. So happiness is an outcome. Happiness is a result. You sow and you reap your way into happiness. There's no other way. So the question is, what makes you happy? And it's the last fill-in. Two things now. No thing and sowing. No thing makes us happy. It's about who, not what. There's no thing that can ultimately make us happy. What makes us happy? Sowing. Sowing, sowing, sowing. And we reap it the same way. So I'm going to ask you to do something really practical. As we close, I want you to look at those eight things, and I want you to circle the one thing that you need to work on this week. The one thing that, that God has maybe just been tapping on your heart as we've been talking today is say, here's one area that I need to focus on this week. What would it be for you? Go ahead and circle that number. And I want you to put it somewhere where you're going to see it this week. And I believe that if we will put these words into practice, that there is a happiness equation on the other side of it. And our lives will be blessed, fortunate, or happy because of it. So would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have created us with this capacity for happiness, and now you're teaching us and you're causing us to lean in towards the equation. And here's the answer. We know it. And so we pray, God, that you would help us this week to focus on this one area that you know we need to focus on, the one thing that we need to begin to sow differently in order to reap differently. Because we know that ultimately happiness comes through you. And it's the way we want to live. So show us how. Give us the strength to do it. In Jesus' name.